hi, everybody. This is Libby Hellman, and welcome to Second Sunday Books. And I am absolutely delighted to have William Kent Kruger with me today. And this is the first official podcast for his upcoming book. But by the time you listen to it, it may well be out, This Tender Land. And of all the books he's written, this probably has been getting most of the buzz or more buzz than all of them put together. Wouldn't you say, Kent? Well, hi, Libby. Thanks for having me. And it is... It is certainly getting some very nice buzz in advance of publication. I'm quite pleased. Yeah, well, it's gotten, let's see, it was picked up by Indie Next uh, as one of their books of the month, and it was also picked up by, um, what is it, ALA Library um, Best 10 Upcoming Books. I think that's right. So it's a Midwest uh, bookseller's pick. It was the number one indies pick for uh, for September, and it is one of the recommended um, by ALA. So lots of good stuff happening. Yeah, Um, it's a great book. Um, I loved reading it, and I I would love you to tell our guests all about it. I mean, it is kind of crime fiction, so you haven't gone too far away from home. But it really isn't either. So tell us about, well, tell, I don't know, start from the beginning. Sure. Let I me, let me give you the been... elevator version, okay? Yeah. So this Tenderland is set in the summer of 1932, deep in the Great Depression. It's the story of four orphans running from the law because they've committed a terrible crime, but for the right reason. They know if they take to the roads to get away, they'll be caught quickly because a huge manhunt has been launched to capture them. They're afraid to ride the rails as everybody was doing back in the Depression because the railroads back then were patrolled by uh, private cops called bulls, and the bulls had a reputation for being incredibly cruel, so the kids are afraid to ride the rails. Instead, they decide to take to the rivers. Their plan is to canoe uh, a river called the Gilead to the Minnesota. They canoe the Minnesota to the Mississippi, And what they intend to do is canoe all the way down the Mississippi to St. Louis, where they believe they have family and they'll be safe. So there is a a definite element of crime involved. But in truth, this is my updated version of Huckleberry Finn. (laughs) Why? Because I always wanted to do that, you know. I fell in love with Mark Twain when uh, when I was a kid, and uh, mm-hmm. and for years, Libby, I've had in the back of my mind the idea of writing an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. It took a long time before a lot of the elements came together uh, in in the way that would form a coherent story with a a good pace and a, a good thread to draw it through. Um, but as soon as that happened, um, boy. I was head and shoulders and and heart and heels uh, in love with this book, with this manuscript. One of the things that you and I have talked about a lot over the years is the changes in our process of writing. And I know that you used to outline everything in the early days, um, you know, even down to scenes and who just says what to whom and why. But it, recently you've become a little freer with yourself 
you know, in terms of not exactly knowing where you're going or or figuring it out when you got to it, what kind of a process was it to write this tender land? My process began to change pretty dramatically with Ordinary Grace, which was the an earlier standalone and a companion novel to this tender land. Um, with Ordinary Grace, when I went into that book, I knew very little about it. I just knew a few salient details, and I chose to allow that story to reveal itself to me, which was, as you pointed out, a very different kind of process from uh, what I'd been following to write my Cork O'Connor series. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Now, when I went back to writing the next Cork book after I finished Ordinary Grace, I still thought that story through significantly, but I wasn't as concerned with getting all of the details in place, and I let that story mm-hmm. unfold in a, in a much looser fashion than I had uh, for, for so many of the other books. And I have found mm-hmm. I, I like that process. And when I wrote mm-hmm. This Tender Land, I knew certain things about it, but once again, I let the story reveal itself to me in the course of the writing of it. And I just so enjoyed that process, at least yeah. for the standalones. Yeah. No, I enjoy that, too. Um, what happens to me, and I'm curious if it happens to you, you know, I'm sort of the impatient kind. And when I get to a scene where I kind of know the objective, I mean, I know where I want it to go, but I don't know how it's going to get there yet. I have to sometimes just get away from writing altogether and do something else or think about their characters, or do some research, or just kind of forget about it until the story of that particular chapter comes to me. And it usually turns out that it's real, that I'm really glad I waited, because it's stronger. But do you ever have those moments where you just don't know what it's going to be, and you have to turn away from it, or you just have to leave it alone for a while? It's not that I have to. Sometimes circumstances take me away. And while I'm doing whatever, you know, is demanded of me, my brain is, and my subconscious is at, uh, is at work on the story. So when I come back, I often find that there are answers to questions I'd had uh, before I, I took the time off. Yes. But I also find, Libby, something that you and I talked about early on, and that was part of your process, where I have a general sense of what I want to accomplish in a scene. And as I write the scene, it opens up for me and I begin to see other possibilities, things that I hadn't realized as the characters are talking to one another or as the action takes place. And that has then, it's like a domino thing, has an effect on how I mm-hmm. thought about uh, how things play out it may be in a different way than I had anticipated. It's right, fun. Right. That's the bottom yeah, line. It's so fun. much it's really fun. fun. But I, I, I do find that I need to, like... Sometimes I just don't know, and and then I, you know, and I have to give my subconscious time, or I have to literally take time. I mean, I found on the on the manuscript I'm working on now that I have to take, like, uh, you know, almost a day or two days before I can go back to it. But that never happens well, to you. An- 
another thing that you do is is that you uh, tap uh, your friends, your writer friends, for ideas. So you bounce an idea off them, and they respond, and then that opens up your thinking. And mm-hmm. I'm just amazed that that's a part of your process. <laughs> and how Because I, I don't share my ideas with anybody. Oh, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, anybody, you know, no, I, I, I kind of feel like no idea is new, but the treatment of it certainly is. But anyway, oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Let's get back to you. Let's more. talk I, about the characters in um, a, this Tenderland, because you have just a, a great, I mean, they're all different, and they're all very unique, and I know the narrator is Odie, so why don't we start with him? Sure, Odie O'Banion. Um, you know, the first time I really got into a first-person narrative significantly was with this uh, was with Ordinary Grace, and that's a story told by a, a man in his fifties uh, looking back on a summer that took place when he was thirteen years old, and I liked that that um, narrative voice that has both wisdom and naivety, the naivety of a young person and the wisdom of someone looking back on their life. And that I decided I was going to do use that same technique uh, in the telling of uh, this tender land. So once again, you have a very old man in this case, looking back on the summer, he was almost 13 years old, uh, in which this, this river odyssey takes place. Um, and I mm-hmm. fell absolutely in love with Odie. I loved his voice. I loved his uh, tenacity. I loved his wiliness. I loved um, his desperation. I loved his his everything that he wanted in his life. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think you have to really fall in love with your characters in order to create a great story and I certainly did so Odie from the get go his voice just spoke to me in a really dynamic way um, I love his uh, his companions too. His older brother Albert, who is his protector, mm-hmm. um, who is kind of a, a guy of pretty stern moral um, uh, beliefs, um, and really his whole his whole purpose in the story and for much of his life is protecting his younger brother from all of the terrible circumstances that befall them. Uh, I loved Mose, who is their Native American companion on this journey. He's, uh, he's a kid who is mute. His tongue was cut out when he was four years old. And so um, he, he, like most Native Americans back then, particularly those in the boarding school system, he has no voice. And of course, mm-hmm. there's little Emmy who joins, um, uh, who kind of foists herself onto the other vagabonds on this journey, mm-hmm. and who really, um, in a way, becomes the the spirit that carries them forward. You know, um, I, it's interesting, and I don't know if this was because of Huckleberry Finn or just because you're more comfortable with male adolescent characters. You didn't have a female adolescent. Because Emmy is a little girl when she's Emmy with them. Emmy is six. That's right. 
Right. Well, right. But you didn't yeah. have like I don't know what it's like to be a female with. adolescent. <laughs> That's territory. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. That I, I have no idea about. <laughs> and I, I, there are so many wonderful women writers out there who can cover that <laughs> territory. So there just simply wasn't a character who spoke to me who would have had uh, okay. who would have been of that age. Okay. Okay. And okay. So except these, these except four, Odie does fall in love with Maybeth Schofield. Yeah. So there is a young woman in there. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about their adventures on the river. And um, I think the one that's gotten the most attention, or the one that, let me put it this way, I remember most vividly is the evangelical uh, <laughs> uh, couple. And tell us sure. a little bit about that. That's the Sword of Gideon Healing Crusade, and it is headed <laughs> up. Did you make that? You made that up, of course. I made that up, sure. Yeah, uh, great. Hey, I'm a writer. It's what I do. It's headed right. up by a very charismatic um, woman named Sister Eve, who is um, a healer, purportedly. A, 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 um, a charismatic uh, healer. Uh mm-hmm. And she's also very, she's also worldly wise. And so for a very long time, um, I hope the reader and also the kids aren't quite sure how to read her. Is she for real? Uh, is she a huckster? Um, and I just loved writing Sister Eve. Um, and that whole sort of uh, Gideon Healing Crusade section of the book. So here's something for readers to think about as they approach the book, or if they've already read the book, to think about. One of the difficulties I had early on, I had a lot of the elements of this story, but I didn't know the structure of it, Libby. I didn't know how to put that journey together. And then I hit on the idea of using Homer's Odyssey um, to guide me. And so if you look at each of the sections of the book after the kids leave the Native American boarding school, that first section, every encounter they have mirrors an experience, an adventure that Odysseus had as he attempts to return to Ithaca from Troy. So Sister Eve really... Sister Eve is Circe. If you look at how Sister Eve soothes uh, the savage beast in men... um, she has these uh, purportedly magical powers. Uh, she tries to convince the, the kids to come with her and stay with her. All of that's exactly what Circe and uh, Odysseus dealt with. If you look at the next section uh, with One-Eyed Jack, that is, uh, or the section before that, actually, Polyphemus, the Cyclops Polyphemus. If oh you look God. at... Maybeth Schofield, uh, that is Calypso, trying to lure Odysseus away from his journey. Um, if you look at the, the West Side Flats in St. Paul, it's the Lotus Eaters. It's going to go right <laughs> over readers' heads. I know that in, in exactly the same way it went over yours. But for me, I needed oh. that in order to structure the, the story. Do you do you uh, give him an acknowledgement? I hope <laughs> uh, the epi- the epigram at the epigram yeah. epigraph whatever whatever it is Emigra- that, that, uh, I don't know epigraph yeah maybe <laughs> yeah whatever it is that opens the book <laughs> is a, is a, is Homer 
singing me wow, oh, I, muse and threw me tell the story. We never talked about that. That's pretty amazing. Well, there you go. So I'm hoping the book, uh, I'm hoping the book ends up being discussed in college classes. <laughs> and that's the kind of assignment <laughs> the students will be given. Oh, but you know what? That'll be a fun assignment for them. Well, I hope so. And, I hope so. and has it come up in any of the uh, pre-publicity? Well, it has. A that, number of the a number of the uh, booksellers have pointed that out. Okay. Well, very cool. That's that's great. Which of the adventures, vignettes, scenes was the most difficult to write for you, and why? Uh, the final scene. Uh, the final section um, where essentially uh, Odie comes home to Ithaca um, because I wasn't sure how to play that out in a believable way. There are some twists that occur in that section, and I needed to be able to set up the twists in a way that made them believable. And that was the most delicately written and rewritten section of the whole (laughs) book. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you happy with the way it turned out? Oh, indeed I am, Libby. Yeah. I love this book, Libby. I so love this book. Let's go back, because I'm really glad you love it, because I I know, and, and you've talked about this, so it's no secret, that you started a different version of this book, like, what, five or six years ago? Six years ago. Maybe even okay. more. Okay, tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, so I wrote the novel Ordinary Grace. It was a standalone, and uh, and it it had such a tremendous reception from critics and readers. It was just overwhelming. Um, and as soon as my publisher saw how well the standalone did compared to my Corco Connor series, which has done quite well, um, they really wanted a, a <laughs> if you second. don't say so yourself. <laughs> yeah, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> they wanted a second novel, kind of just like Ordinary Grace. So I signed a contract right. for that second novel. I got paid an enormous amount of money for it. And I and I spent the next uh, two years writing what I thought would be the companion novel to Ordinary Grace. Um, that was due like almost four years ago now, that manuscript. But a couple of months before that deadline, I set up a meeting in Chicago to talk with my agent about revisions to the to the piece because there were problems with it. I knew it, she knew it. A couple of days before we got together, I um, I sent her an email saying, when we when we meet, I don't want to talk about how we revise this piece. I want to talk about how we keep it from being published because it wasn't the story I thought it would be. I I didn't know how to make it that story, and honestly, my heart wasn't in it anymore. Um, turns out I have a pretty understanding publisher, so they said fine, you don't have to give us this manuscript, but you still owe us a companion novel. So here's the deal, Libby. The expectations for that follow-up novel were enormous. I felt crushed mm-hmm. the whole time I was trying to write that that story. And in truth, I was trying to meet everybody else's expectations as opposed to trying to write the story I wanted to write. Soon as those expectations, all that weight got lifted off my shoulders and I felt free again, I did see the story I should have been working on an entirely 
different kind of story. That Huckleberry Finn update that I'd always been dreaming of began to coalesce for me for the first time. And, uh, and that's what I then worked on for the next three years. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but it seems to me you came up with that second idea pretty quickly after, you know, you got the you got rid of the first draft, the first manuscript. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was go like back to almost that. overnight. Well, there we go back to that subconscious thing. Probably mm-hmm. my my creative subconscious was at work on the story even while I was not really consciously aware of it um, mm-hmm. because I was so muddled with all this other stuff. And when, when everything cleared up, it just surfaced for me. Here it is, it essentially said. And that's when the idea, uh, and that's really when the idea of the Homer Odyssey piece of it uh, right. uh, fell into place. And I thought, oh, okay, this is how this story gets structured. And it all kind of flowed from there. Now, did you have um, arcs for each of the characters? Not, I mean, you did for the main characters. I know, I know that. Uh, but for the, I want, I almost said actors and actresses. Um, for the characters <laughs> in the different scenarios that Odie and his gang um, come across, did did you think about? their arcs at all or were they just sort of set characters who came in and did their piece and either enthralled or repulsed or uh or they either love you know Odie and his brothers and friends either hated or loved them and then they went away so i had an idea yeah. No, I had not. It's it's very much the the kind of thing we talked about before. How I write these days, at least the standalones. I had an idea of what was going to occur, but the details of what was going to occur, how it was going to play out, how they would move from one section, one adventure to the next. Uh, I didn't really know until I was into the writing of each of the sections. So again, mm-hmm. those. The, the particulars of the adventures kind of revealed themselves to me as I was doing the writing of them. I had no idea how I, I Sister know. Eve was going to play out. I had no idea right. um, how, uh, how in the end, uh, One-Eyed Jack would play out, or the Schofields, right. or any of that. Well, I remember at one point, and this is just, this isn't a big deal, but we were talking about one of the characters, I'm not going to say who it is, and he seemed to be sort of, you know, kind of a scam artist, but you were thinking of making him a little bit more sincere. And this was just a guy who was part mm-hmm. of one of the scenarios. Right. I mean, did those kinds of thoughts uh, come into your writing at all as you were writing it? I mean, did you did you change your preconceptions of the characters who were going to be in those episodes? Well, one of the things, and you and I have talked about this before, is is that um, you can't have a character who's all good or a character who's all bad, because um, they're not human. And so as I, right. there, there really is only one, one character in this book that I would call totally evil, 
But at one point, mm-hmm. you finally understand some of the backstory mm-hmm. there and why that character might have been shaped in the way that she's shaped. Um, but the character you're talking about, uh, I wanted him to be a character completely, pretty much completely out for himself. He's not a horrible person by any means, um, but he's just kind of out for himself. And so he behaves right. in some in some ways that are, you know, not particularly noble. But he also does some things that um, kind of redeem him. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think I think you were the one who even suggested that. Right. I, I well, I'm glad. Um, so you, <laughs> you have fact, a. You, there's another. There's another thing you suggested because you looked at uh, part of this oh. manuscript fairly early on. You suggested that I needed a prologue, and I <laughs> love the prologue I've written for this book. And thank you for suggesting oh. it needed that. Oh my goodness! I I. Uh, wow, I, I didn't realize that 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 you had did. happened. So thanks. Yeah, you did. Um, so let me ask you, I probably asked you this before, um, taking, taking everything together, you know, all the elements of fiction that we use to craft a story, what element is the easiest for you to write and what element is the most difficult and why? Sure, setting is the easiest element for me, and I can't tell you why exactly, except that I have a brain that's shaped to, to, to suck up all of the sensual details of a, of a place I've been, um, and I can just kind of squeeze it out like a sponge when it comes to the writing, and it just kind of flows out onto the page, and I love that. I love writing sense of place. Um, probably what's most difficult is trying to maintain um, a compelling, suspenseful, tale that doesn't involve people being in, in visceral danger, <laughs> which is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the shtick we all follow when we write our, our mystery stuff. But Ordinary right. Grace and uh, and This Tender Land both have very little of that, that visceral danger in there, so that the difficulty is in crafting a story that in the conflicts you you create and in the the concern for the characters and what's going to happen to them, that's the source of the suspense. And that's not an mm-hmm. easy thing to do. I, at least I don't find it an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I know exactly what you're saying. Yep, because uh, I'm, I'm trying something different for me. Um, and it it's not going to be a mystery, so... Uh, Do you know, and maybe that's that the thing. You know, if we think of ourselves as artists, we ought to always be trying to grow and trying different things. We ought to be always stretching and reaching. And yeah. you know, sometimes you, sometimes you, you know, you fall over that edge. I did that with the first attempt at the companion novel, but but in the end, you, you have the opportunity to create something you are just thrilled with and so different, and felt like you had mm-hmm. grown tremendously as an artist. Yeah, well, we shall see. Well, you certainly haven't in this tender land. I mean, you are known for endings that are, you know, uh, increasingly, I don't, I'm not sure spiritual is the right word, but they're typically happy endings or Typically, endings hopeful. where the main character the does hopeful, get what Libby. hopeful. Hopeful, hopeful. I, I, as as the as I, you know, give the reader in that prologue that you encouraged me to write. Um, mm-hmm. 
Um, this this is a story that is about hope, and in the end, isn't that what every good story is about? So what I what I have maybe it's because uh, I'm uh, I'm older these days and a little bit wiser and and a little bit more hopeful about the world. I try to write stories that convey a sense of hope at the end. Yeah, I do that. So so, so what what is your darkest book? Do you think of and then and that would include, I guess, the cork books, or even even they seem to work themselves out to having some sort of sense of hope at the end. At least I'm trying to remember. I mean, maybe well, the I one can tell where you, what you my darkest to... book is. Sure. Yeah. The darkest yeah. book I ever wrote is a book called Red Knife. Uh, there's ah, so much violence right. in that because I wanted to write a book that was about violence. Why are we right. such a violent people? Why do we pass violence down as a social norm, even though we won't admit it, as a social norm, one generation to the next? And that's the darkest book I've ever written. You know, and talking about college curriculums or syllabus, that would be a great book for people to read today, don't you think? I think it's so appropriate in terms of the yeah. themes that that are at the heart of it. Absolutely, Libby. I sort of hope. Yeah, we're talking about school change. violence. To to our to any listener who has not read read nice, it's about school violence and and stuff going on in the schools. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and which do you think is your most hopeful? Um. Ordinary Grace in this Tenderland t- together. <laughs> okay. um, if they okay. don't buoy your heart, nothing will. Yeah, all right. It's great. Uh, and you know that I am um, a tough person to please, but um, terrific. Oh, I'm so happy, Libby. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, well, we will let you go now because they, well, you have a 50-stop tour. On and 60 events. Yeah, well, and people love you, too. So you're going to have a great, great time, and I'm sure this will be a huge bestseller. I can't imagine that it won't be. And I'm just glad that we got you before the frenzy starts and that uh, I can call this the first official podcast with William Ken Kruger on this Tenderland. It will go down in history. <laughs> it's always such a pleasure to talk with you, Libby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you, Kent, and good luck on the tour. Thank you. And thank you all for listening in, and I just wanted to mention that this is a trademark copyrighted podcast, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I will be back again with another edition of Second Sunday Books um, next month. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 